You're listening to the Nerd Cave Network. Episode 9 of the Nerd Cave Retro Podcast. My name is Jason Robbins. And I'm Derek Diamond. And uh, sorry we didn't have a show last week. Um, Pretty much life got in the way. So um, we're back this week and we have a fresh new show with some news articles. And this month in gaming history. So let's talk about what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. And I will let my co-host Derek start us off. Yeah, it's been a pretty busy couple of weeks. Um, Baseball season is over. So I'll have a lot more free time to play retro games and really have any type of a life, yeah. <laughs> which is pretty fantastic. Um, we actually went to the Mobile Flea Market a couple of weekends ago, and you found some uh, some pretty good deals. Yes, I did. Um, I found uh, the the Incredible Hulk SNES game, which I didn't even know was a thing. I didn't had no clue that was a game, the Incredible Hulk. And also found Batman Returns and also Star Trek The Next Generation for Super Nintendo. Got it all for 14 bucks, which I think is a pretty good, pretty good thing. I'm very curious about the Star Trek Next Generation game because I loved that show growing up. Like it's my favorite Star Trek like incarnation. So have have you ever played that game before? Never. Um, I knew it was a thing, but it never crossed my radar when I was younger. It just, it didn't seem like the kind of gameplay that would interest me. But at this age, I started to play it. And of course I don't have the, uh, the, the, the booklet to show me how to do anything. So I kind of had to play around and figure out how to do things. Um, it basically, it's, it's kind of a different type of game. Like you start off, you're on the bridge, you're, you play as captain Picard, obviously, um, and you've got your different sections you can go to. You got like your, uh, you know, your navigation and where you tell them where to go. And then you look to the left, you know, you spin around and you see the entire bridge and you've got like, you know, your specs for, you know, engineering. And then you've got like um, other different things like your ready room and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you basically, you get uh, a distress signal and, um, this woman comes on the screen saying that they're on some planet and they're being attacked and they need help. So you have to look through the menu. She tells you where she's at, but you have to look through these menus and, and tell data where to go. And then the ship goes to this planet and then you have to pick your, your away team. Um, and you have to go down to the planet and, you know, go around and it's kind of a weird three quarter angle top down when you go down to the planet. And you've got your phasers, and it it gets kind of wonky at that point. I got to play it a little bit more because that's as far as I got. Um, but I'm gonna definitely play it some more and give a a more in depth review in the next couple of weeks, probably. You using all those terms makes me want to watch the show again. Oh yeah, it, it's it's as close to the show as you're gonna get in old school video game form. It, the graphics are really nice on it. Uh, they're they're a notch above most graphics that you're gonna see, especially when you're in the uh, the bridge area. I mean, it looks exactly like the show, um, but of course, it, it's got that 16 bit like real. The colors pop, and it's like 
it's just cool when you look at it. If you, I mean, you kind of get that feel, you know, that like I am in a 16 bit world right now. Um, but I love Star Trek The Next Generation. It's my favorite. Like you said, it's my favorite um, version of Star Trek that's ever been. I've seen every episode probably 20 times at least. It's my wife's mm -hmm. favorite iteration of Star Trek. And um, I'm going to play it and see, you know, what the game's about. And I'll give a review of it. Yeah, I'm actually looking at photos from it right now. This does look like a really nice game. Yeah, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, I like games that give you that kind of freedom of, okay, well, we can go to this planet or this planet. And then you go and, like, you got to look up whether or not you can actually beam down to the planet and what kind of class planet it is. All, all that kind of stuff is in there. It seems like it's a pretty large game to be, you know, a, a retro game. Nice. Yeah, at that same flea market, I found a game that I played a little bit when I was younger, which is surprising because I was a huge fan of this franchise. But I found the original Mighty Morphin Power Rangers game. That's fantastic. For, for Super Nintendo. I think it was only like six bucks and it was in perfect condition, which was really cool. I've played it briefly. Um, it's kind of like the Ninja Turtles games that we've described the last two episodes. It's mm -hmm. pretty much a side-scroller, beat-em-up type of game. But growing up, you know, being a huge Power Rangers fan, it just gave me that wonderful feeling of nostalgia that <laughs> anybody who plays retro games, you know what I'm talking about when you have the, that just that feeling of being a kid again yeah, playing games. And it was just so much fun. I'm so happy that I found it. Oh, yeah, I'm ready to go back to that flea market and see what else I can find. And like I said, I did pick up The Incredible Hulk. I got to play it a little bit, not too much. Um, the, that one and the Star Trek are in perfect condition. Uh, the Batman Returns was a little bit beat up when I got it. I had to do a lot of cleanup on it to get it to look decent. Um, and part of the casing broke, but it still holds together and you're able to play it. Um I had to bust it open and clean it a lot. There were some, uh, <laughs> there were some roach droppings inside of it when I opened it up. Wow. It was, uh, it was a little gross. So the whole thing has just been doused in alcohol. Um, but I cleaned it up really nice and it, it plays. Um, it is pretty much final fight with a Batman skin on it. So I'm going to enjoy playing it because I love final fight. Fantastic. Shall we get into our news? Absolutely. Let's do this. I'm going to let you start us off in the, in the news this week. This seems like a pretty cool article here you've got. From RetroCollect.com, Nintendo 64 multimedia expansion device patents discovered. Most gamers will be familiar with the Nintendo 64 DD DD meaning disk drive, attachment for the Nintendo 64 that promised larger games and enhanced functionality. Sadly, the 64 DD never saw the light of day outside of Japan, and even then the add-on received a handful of exclusive disk games. It appears that Nintendo of America could also have been secretly working on an expansion device for the N64, though, as documented by Assembler Games Forum member DS2, who recently discovered a collection of long-forgotten patent documents. And basically what this is, it's basically kind of like blueprints for what was called the Nintendo 64 disk drive. It's an attachment that goes into the bottom of 
the N64. And what it was supposed to do was add to specific games. And probably the most famous one would be uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, Mm -hmm. where you basically go through the game, but everything is mirrored. So every dungeon, I think it's just every dungeon you go through is everything is flipped. And they re-released this on the GameCube, I remember, as a bonus disc uh, with Wind Waker when it came out. You could pre-order a GameCube disc that had the original Ocarina of Time and also what they called the Master Quest, which was that reversed dungeon game. And it was actually much more difficult because if you play through Ocarina of Time multiple times like I have, mm-hmm. when you reverse everything, it just throws you way out of whack and can cause frustration sometimes, but in a good way. <laughs> and this looks pretty cool, but I think this pretty much came out at the time when people were done with buying peripherals for the consoles. Because at this time, the PlayStation 1 had already come out and was mm-hmm. starting to dominate. So... If you if you're gonna buy a system, you know uh, that plays discs. Why would you buy something like an expansion to another machine that wouldn't be as well as a solid state machine like the PlayStation was? Yeah, whenever I look at this disc drive, it kind of makes me think this could have been the very early stages of downloadable content. Yeah. So I. I but I'm not time, surprised. Oh, go ahead. Oh, but at that time, all you had was dial-up. Can you imagine how long it would take to download stuff to, oh, to this God. device? You'd be waiting for days. Oh God, man! I can't. I would, that's you kids listening to this. <laughs> be thankful for the internet we have today. Even as slow as it is sometimes, when you're trying to do something very important, and all of a sudden the internet just stops working for no reason. It's still nothing compared to dial-up. Dial-up was awful. Ah, uh, the days of AOL. Oh, God. Do you remember the, uh, please wait while we add new art. Did you ever experience I, that? The thing I remember the most is just that sound. Oh, yeah. That, that will forever be burned in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, or however it goes funny enough that was the beginnings of uh what's that music called nowadays the dubstep dubstep yeah that was the beginnings of dubstep somebody listened to that and said i could put a beat to that it's a shame we didn't think of that because then we'd be millionaires could have been rich i know but uh, (laughs) you had a pretty interesting news article too yeah, this comes from phys.org, P-H-Y-S.org. Digital, blah, blah, blah. Digital forensics rescues retro ga- video games and software. Starting in the mid-1980s, a young man named Stephen Cabernetti filled his home with video games and software. Unopened boxes were piled to the ceilings. Everything from early word processing programs such as WordStar to vintage releases of Pong, Doom, and SimCity. Although at the, at the time, some might have thought he suffered a peculiar obsession, today the Cabernetti collection is considered a priceless snapshot of our culture, one captured just as a digital tsunami that would forever change our civilization was hitting our shores. Cabernetti, Cabernetti did not live to see what would become of his efforts. He died of Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1995, but his collection has achieved a sort of digital immorality. 
the Stanford University Libraries, which acquired the collection in 2009, and the National Institute of Standards and Technologies have just completed a multi-year effort to rescue the collection's digital content from the Atari game cartridges, five and one-fourth inch floppy disks, magnetic tape, and other deteriorating storage media that held it. Now, this dude had some over 25,000 software and video game titles. That is wow. ridiculous. And it's That's all a lot. being archived. That's awesome. I know. Can it's a shame that he died so young because yeah. he, he died at the age of 29. I'm looking at the article right now. Yeah. Um, but the fact that all of that is being archived is fantastic. Yeah, there's one guy, uh, one of the people that are preserving it says um, – for me, it was like opening King Tut's tomb. <laughs> Can oh, you it pretty much is. Yeah, I mean, that's 25,000 th- uh, pieces of video game history. Can you imagine? That's a lot to sort through. 25,000. That That's mind-blowing. I didn't even know they made that much content <laughs> back oh, then. Oh, I didn't either. That's crazy. But I, this is going to be interesting to to follow. Like, I want to know, like, when all of this stuff is successfully you know, digitized and put into archive. Yeah, I'm going to. That's just this is such a fascinating story. Oh, yeah. I'm going to keep uh, my eye on this and uh, kind of keep people updated with this. Uh, uh, by Absolutely. All, yeah. And it says he died too young, but his collection now saved for, for posterity. His dream lives on. That's amazing. And he died young, but in a way, his his memory is, and that's kind of what you strive for is, you know, we don't live forever, but your memory can live forever. Exactly. And his, his is well on the way to doing that. Well, after uh, that collection, let's move on to uh, some of the uh, This Month in Video Game History. In 1985, on September 13th, Nintendo releases Super Mario Brothers, which eventually sells 40 million copies, making it the best-selling video game of all time until 2008. It's the original. It's the it's, one that started one it all. That, yep, one of the most iconic video games of all time. I I completely missed this. You know, I was looking through finding ones to to put into our Google Docs. I just completely missed. Super Mario Brothers, which is crazy, but it's one of the two games that got me here where I am now, you know, oh, yeah. playing video games. I mean, that's the people our age. That was the game that just that was the first game you ever played, mm-hmm. especially for at Nintendo at the time. I mean, everybody played Super Super Mario Brothers. That was just. That was the game everybody had, and you all loved to play it. It never got old. You you could still play it months, years after you had it, and it was still fresh every time you played it. It was just that's why do you think there's people that do speed runs because they've been playing it every day of their lives since like 1985. And if you don't like Super Mario Brothers, then what the hell is wrong with you? Exactly. What the hell are you doing listening to this show then? Yeah. In 1986, uh, September 12th, Hudson Soft releases Adventure Island. Did you ever play Adventure Island? I did not. I do remember this game, but I never, ever played it. I had this game. It's one of the games that <clears throat> I had that's been lost along the way. 
Uh, I looked for another copy of it and I actually found it at, um, what's the name? Oh, Play and Talk a few weeks ago. And they wanted a little bit more for it than I was willing to pay, even though it was a pretty much a mint copy. Um, but there was no, you know, there was no box. It wasn't complete in box. It was just a cart. But right. they wanted a little bit more than I wanted to pay for it. So it's one of the games that's on my list that uh, I want to pick up if I can find it for cheap somewhere. It's a, I mean, it's it's your basic Nintendo side scroller, but it's kind of like Mega Man. It's just one of those games that it may not have been as big as Super Mario Brothers or Mega Man, but everybody that played Adventure Island loved it. It was one of those games that you know serious collectors well not just collectors but people that love the nintendo this is one of those games that they love that they you know they brings back such nostalgia for that time yeah and like i said i never played it but i do remember seeing like the cover art for it and some some pictures from it but i just never played it yeah it's definitely got some iconic cover art to it as soon as you see it you know i mean it doesn't even have to say adventure island on it as soon as you see that cover you're like oh adventure island yep let's see in uh, september 23rd 1993 sonic cd was released in japan which featured the debut of iconic sonic characters amy rose and metal sonic this was after my time playing sonic i don't remember amy rose She's a female hedgehog who is, uh, by by modern standard, she's pretty much a stalker. <laughs> well, she she was like Sonic's number one fan, and at the beginning of the game, she gets captured by Metal Sonic, who is a robotic version of Sonic that can fly. Oh, okay. um, this game it had uh, it was probably the biggest two D Sonic game that they ever made because it featured you had your normal levels, but you could also travel to the past and to the future hmm. and in the future everything's you know mechanical because robotnik's taken over and you have to find uh, instead of the chaos emeralds you have to find the time stones but gameplay wise it's just like your classic genesis sonic game i never actually beat sonic cd but i respect its place in sonic history i know a lot of sonic fans who love this game yeah and and it does introduce two of the more prevalent characters in the franchise, but I will say it's personally not my favorite Sonic game. Yeah, this is about the time you know ninety three when I started to get out of video gaming because I was in high school. I had learned started learning how to play drums. I was playing in bands at the time. I didn't have time for video games. So between like ninety three to about 98 i had nothing to do with video games whatsoever and then in 98 i bought uh was it 98 or 99 when the um i bought a nintendo 64 but it was the um the pod racing edition you remember that one i didn't i'll look that up yeah there, there was a pod racing edition of the nintendo 64 and that's when i got back into video games because uh that's when Resident Evil 2 had was on the Nintendo 64, and I love that game. I played through it about 10, 12 times, probably. I see it. That looks cool. Yeah. Is that, it the one that looks like a TIE Interceptor? Um, actually, no. It, I mean, it was just a regular Nintendo 64, 
but it was boxed and you know it was the the pod racer star wars edition and it came with the oh, star wars okay. pod racer this does look really cool it's someone basically built a nintendo 64 like they put it inside of darth vader's tie fighter <laughs> that's cool it looks awesome i want that oh it looks so cool <laughs> oh i do too that's fantastic. I wonder what that guy will take for it. Oh, I'm probably more um, than I can pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. Here, um, in 1996, on September 9th, Crash Bandicoot was released for PlayStation One. This this is a franchise I would love to see return. I loved the Crash Bandicoot games, the original trilogy, and the Crash Team Racing, which is kind of like a Mario Kart clone. Yeah. But I wouldn't call it a Mario Kart ripoff. Crash Bandicoot was to me like it was a platformer, but it was different than Mario. It was a little wackier, had a very different setting. And it's like I wish platforming would make some type of comeback. Yeah, I did play Crash Bandicoot a couple of times, but I didn't really get into it because I don't know. I was kind of over platformers at that time. Um, I mean, like I said, I, you know, I didn't really get back into <clears throat> gaming until like 98, 99. So by that time I was into more stuff like, um, you know, the Resident Evil series and things like that. So platformers kind of felt kiddish to me, especially stuff mm-hmm. like Crash Bandicoot. But I did, I do think it was a new, a, a good different take on the platform genre because it was way different than, than what had come before it. And what's cool is either later this year or next year, the original Crash Bandicoot trilogy is being remastered for the PS4. And I'm very excited to play through those games again. And I hope it leads to like a legitimate Crash Bandicoot 4 being made. I don't know that it will happen, but I would love to see it. Well, I'll definitely have to check it out. I mean, I, I feel like it was something that passed me by and I need to go back and check it out because it was just something that I just missed. Maybe one day I'll have to do, uh, like for one week I'll take a different route from the Super Nintendo and I'll do a Crash Bandicoot review. Yeah, we can all, we can do pretty much whatever we want on this show. That, it's our show. That is true. <laughs> it is our show. And then uh, the last segment of this month in video game history, in 1998, on September 10th, Spyro the Dragon was released for PlayStation 1. I know a lot of people who swear by Spyro, who actually like it more than Crash Bandicoot, but I could never get into Spyro. It just wasn't my thing. I know nothing about Spyro the Dragon. I mean, I know what it looks like. Like, I could pick out Spyro the Dragon, but as far as gameplay, I don't think I've ever seen anything from it. I tried playing it once, and like I said, it just wasn't my thing. Props to people, you know, if you're a huge Spyro fan, I'm sorry, but it just wasn't my thing. With yeah. PlayStation, I was more of a Crash Bandicoot guy. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, to each his own, you know. That is true. But uh, let's go ahead and move into our review for this week, and you have uh, you have the review this week, sir. That is correct. And let's play a little music.
what what is this game derek this game is called secret of mana for the super nintendo um probably my number two favorite rpg right behind earthbound this is a game that i put so many hours into it was originally released in japan and if I get this name, if I get the pronunciation wrong, I apologize. It was originally released in Japan as Saiken Densetu 2, which translates to Legend of the Sacred Sword. It's a 1993 action role-playing game developed and published by Square, now known as Square Enix, for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. What this basically is, um, instead of doing a turn-based RPG game like most games like Final Fantasy and other RPGs, it has real-time battles, meaning you walk around in the field, enemies pop up, and you can directly attack them. The story to this game, I thought, was very good. It combines a medieval with magic and a little bit of what I like to call the human element. There's a lot of love, uh, death, tragedy, um, and there are a lot of crazy plot points in this game. Basically what happens is you play as this young kid. His stock name is Randy, but I always named him myself, like most kids probably did. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's out at this uh, like fall-type area, like the Niagara Falls in a way. Um, he falls, and he basically gets like washed away into a river, makes it onto land, and he finds the sword that's sticking out of a stone. He pulls it out, and that unleashes all types of enemies in the world. Um, some that are very harmless, and some that are a pain in the you-know-what to fight. <laughs> so throughout this game, you learn that there was basically this mystical force called mana, and it turned out that it was used for evil. So it was sealed away with the sword. So basically when you pull the sword out, you unleash it. So you have to use it for good to stop this evil empire who wants to resurrect this battleship called the Mana Fortress, which is basically like a smaller scale version of the Death Star. It basically has a lot of firepower and they can use it to control the world. So you basically go to these different points and you have to uh, get stronger and you learn uh, magic spells, uh, magic attacks. You get two friends that accompany you. There's this girl and a little sprite child and they can each learn magic. You yourself as the main character, you can't. You can only use your weapons like your sword. You can get a bow and arrow, a spear, um, fighting gloves boomerang, all kinds of cool items. And then the sprite child uses elemental attacks. So like you can learn fire attacks, ice, water, electric. And then the girl learns uh, healing powers and also powers that can enhance your weapons for a short period of time. So do you does your party work on an AI system or do you have to kind of cycle through each different character to do their different thing? Um, it goes through AI, though what you could do back in the Super Nintendo days is you could get this accessory called the multi-tap because the Super Nintendo only had uh, two controller spots, mm -hmm. but there are three characters. 
what you can do with the multi-tap is you plug it into one of the controller slots, and it's basically like a power adapter. And then you can play up to four players. Huh. So if you so if you had three people, one could be the boy, one can be the girl, and the other can be the sprite child. Or you can what you can do is if it's just one player, is you can go to your menu screen and you can select say if you want the sprite to be aggressive with his spells, you can set it to that, or you can set it to be more conservative. Or with the girl, you can say, oh, I want her to do physical attacks more, or I want her to, to constantly be casting healing spells if I'm about to die. See, this sounds like the 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 early days of games like Dragon Age. Yes, it does. There's actually quite a few um, sequels and spinoffs to this game, though I've never played any of them. This was a game my uncle had it, and he was the one who really introduced me to a lot of video games. So he just had it, and I was like, oh, this game looks kind of cool. And then I played it, and you know, he let me borrow it. And I remember beating it in like a couple of weeks. It's kind of a long game, but back then that's really all I did was go to school and play video games. Yeah, this game kind of went past my radar at the time. I mean, I, I remember hearing about this game, but I never picked it up and played it. It says that as of February 2004, Secret of Mana had shipped 1.83 million copies worldwide, with 1.5 million of those copies being shipped in Japan and 330,000 abroad. It's just, it's such a good game. So they and were like still, you said, it's one of those games... Oh, go ahead. So they were still selling this game in 2004. Mm-hmm. Almost, was 10, cool. almost 10 years after it was released. I didn't actually know this until I looked up a, uh, on Wikipedia. This game was remade for uh, smartphones. Really? Like, you can go on the App Store if you have... Um, it's available on Android, too, but we both have iPhones, um, it was released for iOS in 2010 and Android in 2014. I haven't played it. I looked it up. I went on the App Store right before we started recording, and the graphics actually look improved. I don't know how the gameplay works with using it on a smartphone. I'm kind of interested in trying it, but I know it's available on the the Wii's virtual console. It's not on the Wii U, unfortunately. Um I hope that when the NX comes out, this would be on their virtual console or whatever they're going to call their virtual console. Mm -hmm. But I highly recommend this game to anybody who loves a good story because, like I said, it deals with, you know, things... It deals with a lot of very human emotions. Like, all the characters go through some type of loss. Like, the girl, her boyfriend, who's the leader of the military in this world has basically been brainwashed. Um, the Sprite child has lost his entire family and the boy has no idea who his parents are. Huh. So there's a lot of discovery. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it, in the beginning of it has kind of a happy tone to it, but as you progress through the game, it gets a little darker and you just get this impending feel of doom. <laughs> It says here uh, in 2014, 
Edge Magazine described The Secret of Mana as one of the high points of the 16-bit era. A writer for the magazine noted that 20 years after Secret of Mana's release, its reputation as an SNES action RPG had been surpassed only by that of The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. That's very high praise. Uh, it took, let's see, um, and game rankings list the game as the 13th highest rated SNES game. In 1996, Superplay ranked Secret of Mana 8th on its list of the best 100 SNES games of all time. It took 42nd place on Nintendo Power Magazine's 2006 Top 200 Nintendo Games of All Time, and the magazine called it the 86th best game on a Nintendo system. IGN's Top 100 Games list ranked the game at number 48 in 2005, number 49 in 2006, uh, and number 79 in 2007, and pretty much everybody's just rating this thing through the roof. It's really good. Like I said, Earthbound is probably my favorite SNES RPG, but this is a very close second. It, it's just, it has all those cool gaming mechanics. You get to learn all kinds of cool spells. I mean, you get eight different types that you can choose from. It's a pretty long game, so you have the chance to invest a lot of hours into it. If you like longer story-driven games like I do, this is perfect. Yeah. And the replay value is actually really good. Well, so I, I give my... this game my absolute highest praise. Well, I'm going to keep my eye out for this. If I find a copy of this, I'm going to snatch it up. Oh, absolutely. I haven't seen one in person ever since I've you know been looking for SNES games. This has been one that I have yet to see. I've seen a copy of Earthbound, but I haven't seen Secret of Mana. Yeah. Inbox or out. Ooh, at, and at the um the fleet market I saw out of the corner of my eye a copy of Zombies Ate My Neighbors, which is one of the Super Nintendo games oh, I've been looking really? for. But when I turned and looked at it, it was for the Genesis. I was like, oh, oh man, <laughs> so close. Ah, oh, so close yet so far. But no, on a scale of one to ten, I would give this game uh, a solid nine. Wow, that high. Yes. It, right. It's it's very good. I would say if I were ranking my top my top ten SNES games of all time. It's probably borderline top five. Like, it'd be in the five to six range. Hmm. It's very good. I, I would recommend, like, watching some gameplay of it just to see if you might like it. Yeah. And the soundtrack is really good. Well, I was actually listening to it before I called you. Yeah, it sounded good to me because, you know, before we do our show, I go through and, you know, I'll pull some clips off of YouTube for the, the soundtracks of the games. And this one had some pretty cool stuff. It took me a while to figure out what I actually wanted to use for the, the music because they didn't have it um, in separate tracks. It was all just one track. So I sat and listened to it for a while and just kind of went back and to the beginning. I was like, well, this, you know, this is sounds like it's from the, the, you know, maybe the menu page. So that's why I picked what I did. No, it, it's, it was a good song. It has that feel, it gives you that feeling of the whole game where there's tragedy, but ultimate triumph. Yeah. 
Well, it looks like a great game. I mean, if anybody out there, if you see it, pick it up, play it, and uh, let us know what you think about it. I had actually started uh, earlier this year when I started doing my Throwback Thursday Let's Plays, which you can check out every Thursday on Nerd Cave Gaming's YouTube channel. Cheap plug there. Mm-hmm. But um, I, had ju- I had started doing a Let's Play for this, and I just haven't gotten around to finishing it. This is you know one of the multiple ones that I want to do. So just stay tuned over the next couple of months, and you might see this on Nerd Cave Gaming. Awesome. I got to figure out how to put my stuff on YouTube because all I've got is the old consoles. I got to figure out how to how to put it through to the Internet. I uh, I'll have a couple of suggestions that I'll uh, I'll send you off air because I would love to, uh, you know, be on Twitch TV playing my old Nintendo. That would be fun. I'll have to find uh, I have an adapter that I use for when I record like GameCube and Super Nintendo Let's Plays. Mm-hmm. I'll have to see if I can find the original link to it and I'll send it to you. Fantastic. If I remember right, it's really cheap. OK, cool. Because uh, if, if I can get that going, not that I have a lot of time to actually play video games lately, because uh, if you listen to the pop culture palette, got quite a few things going on the next these next few weeks. So hopefully I'll uh, have some time to game. Uh, before next week and i'll actually have a review i'm not sure what i'm going to be reviewing next week yet but i will figure that out in the next day or so well uh tell the listeners about your uh your pretty exciting premiere you have yeah uh wally and i um we wrote a movie it's actually not a full movie it's a short film uh with jeremy london who you might know as t.s quint from mall rats uh we wrote a movie and um it's going to be premiering next week actually this week, because uh, this show comes out tomorrow, if you're in the New Orleans area, you can come to the New Orleans, uh, the NOLA Horror Film Festival, and you can look that up on Twitter at NOLA HFF. Uh, we're the movie that's going to be kicking the whole thing off, so you can get tickets for that. It's going to be at 8 p.m. on Thursday evening, which is, what is the date? I don't even know what the date is. Uh, that's the 22nd. Uh, And then on Saturday, the 24th, we're going to be doing the hometown premiere. Uh, And the movie's called Monsters Anonymous, by the way. Uh, You can look that up on Facebook at facebook.com slash helpthemonsters and on Twitter at helpthemonsters. The hometown premiere is going to be Saturday at the Beacon Theater in Waveland, Mississippi, which if you're in the New Orleans area or the Slidell area, it's only, you know, quick little 30 minute jaunt for you to waveland or if you're on the gulf coast it's not that far uh it's going to be at the beacon theater and it starts at six o'clock we're going to do the red carpet at 5 15 and then we're going to do a q a after after the movie with the producers and mr jeremy london himself so if you have time to get out there please come see us say hi watch the movie and uh it's going to be a good time that's so awesome that you guys got to do that like i for one you know i hate that i can't be at the premiere but i just think that's so awesome that you guys were able to do something that i know you guys worked really hard on and to make it a reality it's a pretty inspiring story if i'm being honest sometimes i feel like forrest gump (laughs) the weird (laughs) things that happen in my life i'm just like how did this happen just one of those things where you know if you keep working at something and you keep moving forward, doesn't matter what it is in this life, you can achieve it, and things will happen. You just 
got to be open to recognizing your, um, you know, just looking for opportunities and recognizing your opportunities as when they present themselves. It's the only way, you know, it, nobody gets lucky in this lifetime. There's no such thing as luck and to quote star Wars, but you make your own destiny in this world. And I never would have thought in a million years that I would have made a movie with, you know, T.S. Quint, you know, Jeremy London from Mallrats, and then Pink, his brother, Jason London, was the assistant director on it, who was Pink and Dazed and Confused. And not only that, we have Brian O'Halloran played uh, Dracula in the movie, and he was Dante and Clerks and Mallrats and Dogma and Clerks too. ton of movies. I mean, if you'd have told me 20 years ago, I'd be making a movie with these guys. I'd have told you we were crazy, but you just keep working at things in this life and things happen. They just, you never know what's going to happen in this life, but you have to be willing to go for it. I couldn't have said it better myself. Exactly. And on that note, let's go ahead and call it an evening. What do you say? Let's do it. If you would, oops, you that's the wrong one. <laughs> it's been, <laughs> it's been, sorry, sorry, people. It's been two weeks. Let's, uh, I'll, I'll hit the wrong, right one this time. Here we go. If you want to get a hold of us, you can get a hold of us at nerdcaveretro at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at nerdcaveretro, at jfunktastic, at Derek underscore diamond. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash nerdcaveretro. So let's go ahead and get out of here. Tell them what to do, Derek. May the way of the hero lead to the Triforce. been listening to a Nerd Cave Network production.